0: today beginning the last of the seven churches you know seven churches seven choices all of them had choices to make and uh, that includes this last one now we're going to look at this uh, church uh, today and then again next sunday because i'm this message is a two-parter we're going to take the first three points you see on your outline today and we'll take the last uh, three uh, next week But we want to look at this seventh church, which is arguably the most famous or most well-known, I guess I should say, of all the seven churches. It's the church at Laodicea. And you notice on your outline that I've titled this the complacent church, because that's the best description. They had become complacent, and as a result of their complacency, they had drifted away from God, and they didn't even know it. And uh, so they represented a kind of church and a kind of follower that that moves from God, and all the while thinks they're uh, lockstep with God and what He wants for their life. The Barner Research Group, which is a probably the most preeminent and prominent uh, uh, Christian polling organization in the world, released a report uh, recently about the growing spiritual decline in both church and in uh, those who claim to be uh, followers of Christ. And they they release a report uh, based around four key spiritual indicators that have dramatically dropped over the past uh, 30 years for example in 1991 86 percent of U.S. adults held a biblical view of God but just last year that number had dropped from 86 percent to just 46 percent do now almost half um And then they also pointed to the belief in the Bible as the accurate word of God. And that fell from 70%, listen to this, to last year, just 41%. Uh, And then uh, the percentage of Americans who believe they'll go to heaven because they accept Jesus as their personal Savior fell to an all-time low of 30% in 2021. People who said, yeah, I believe if I, I, I trust Christ, I'll go to heaven. All the way down to 30%. Barna went on in another report uh, released online to say that at least 40% of born-again Christians no longer attend church or read their Bible uh, each week. 30% are not, quote, absolutely committed to the Christian faith. And 70% are not involved in a small group that meets for spiritual purposes. Well, the growing spiritual complacency of Christians and Christianity according to Barna Research, is at a historical low and a staggering, the results are staggering, Barna's uh, uh, organization said. A.W. Tozer uh, said this, Complacency is the deadly foe of all spiritual growth. The church at Laodicea that we're going to look at today and next week is a church that represented this kind of weird decline in real, authentic, biblical faith. They had all the motions down. They had mastered the motions. But the reality of their faith, the dynamic of real faith, the dynamic of what they believed uh, uh, had declined severely. And the result was a kind of complacency and uh, a self-satisfaction and self-reliance. And so that kind of sets up uh, what I want you to understand about this church, about who they were, where they were spiritually. But here's what it also reminds us of that there uh, there's not a lot of change in the modern church in the modern era today the very same things that were characteristic of them can and often are characteristic of us if you're physically able to do so why don't you stand with me this morning as we read about the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 and remember in each of these churches that we've looked at the, Jesus starts off by addressing his message he calls to the angel of the church. Do y'all, Anybody remember who the angel of the church was? Come on, say it loud. Thank you. The angel. The, well, ne, never mind. Uh, meaning the messenger really is what it is. The message. So this letter, Jesus says, I'm giving this message to the pastor, to the preacher, whatever you want to call it, to deliver to the people. That's what he was saying there. And in each of these churches, uh, churches that was the case. But notice how it, uh, what he says in this first verse. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea right? so he says, this is, this is a message, preacher, I want you to communicate to the church, Laodicea, the words of the amen, that's Jesus. The faithful and true witness, that's Jesus. The beginning of God's creation, that's Jesus. In verse 15 he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Now Lord help us today to hear what your message is. The message that you gave to Laodicea, Father let us hear it. And Father let us be honest and look inside and ask our own li- uh, our uh, ourselves is our own life characteristic of the church of Laodicea. So Father we're ready to hear from you. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you to convict to Uh, confront us where we need to be confronted to encourage us where we need to be encouraged and to challenge and change us father and father if there are those and there are who do not know you we pray that you convert them through the message that you deliver to us today so let us hear may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight and the meditations of my heart be pleasing father my rock and my redeemer in Jesus name amen thank you you can be seated now let me give you a little bit of background. I've done this with all the churches that we have uh, looked at in this series. Let me give you a little bit of background so you'll understand uh, some of the details about Laodicea. It was the furthest east and the furthest south of all the churches that we've looked at geographically. It's set between two cities, Hierapolis, which was a few miles to the north, and Colossae, uh, a few miles to the, the, the south. Its location was perfect for agriculture, a lot of pasture land, and it was perfect for herding. It sat at the intersection of two major trade highways. It was enormously wealthy city, and that's because of the trade, the commerce that ran uh, through these intersections. And so it was a very prosperous area. It was known for its luxurious black wool, and it was, uh, and it was, uh, and because of that, it prospered to a great deal because of its clothing industry. It was kind of a textile industry, but a very uh, wealthy one at that. Like the other cities now, it's full of paganism. You know, I've told you along the way that these cities had all these uh, Greco-Roman pagan gods that they worshipped, and sometimes uh, some of the cities had multiple significant pagan Uh, deities that they worship but most of them had one particular one whether it was Artemis or Apollo or something that uh, Dionysus in some cases it had one that seemed to stand out uh, uh, above the others in the case of Laodicea it was Zeus Zeus was kind of the big pagan deity that was primary there now they had plenty of other pagan uh, deities and there uh, but but zeus was kind of uh, the one that uh, gained most attention this city had undergone an earthquake uh, and the roman emperor had poured money millions what we would say would be millions and millions of dollars to help stabilize and rebuild them and they had in like the others they had built an emperor cult where they worshiped the emperor because he had been so generous but zeus was primary they the church was allowed to exist this church Unlike most of the others we looked at, underwent no persecution. There was little to no persecution here. Why? Because they just kind of went along with everything. And you remember, all through this, I've told you that the biggest problem for the church and the reason for its suffering persecution is that it would not, it would not uh, compromise and just say, we'll just be one of many other kinds of deities and that sort of stuff. But this church just kind of went along. Okay, y'all have your, your uh, uh, pagan gods, and we'll have this god. And that's kind of how they operate. So there was no real persecution of the church at Laodicea. And Jesus, listen to this, Jesus has, unlike the other churches, Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. There's nothing good he commends them for. He doesn't say, oh, Laodicea, you got this problem, but here's something good. Let me just encourage your heart. He doesn't encourage them with anything. There's nothing good he has to say about them. They were worldly. They were blind. They were self-sufficient. They were self-centered. They thought themselves, by the way, to be spiritually superior. I'll talk about that. Uh, when, in fact, Jesus called them pitiful people, uh, the way they saw themselves spiritually is not at all the way God saw them spiritually. And as I was preparing this, I got to thinking about something Paul said in Romans 12. He said, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with uh, sober judgment. Now, we sometimes have used that. So, you know, don't think uh, that you're a little more important than someone else. But the context is really spiritually speaking. In other words, don't don't think, you, don't think more of yourself spiritually than you ought to. Have you ever been around someone that was spiritually arrogant? And it just kind of is nauseating, isn't it? And that's really what Paul was talking about. And that's really part of the problem they had. They, they were spiritually full of themselves, and they had no reason legitimately to be so. And so Paul tells us, hey, look, be careful that you don't fall into this, uh, this category of thinking spiritually more of yourself than you ought to. Laodicea is a reminder that we have to be careful to see ourselves the way God really sees us. Years ago, I had a woman in my church. She told me this uh, when I was pastoring in Florida, that she said, now, Pastor, I appreciate all the messages you've been preaching on spiritual growth. But she said, my husband and I, We don't need them," she told me. "This we don't need them," she said. "We don't need them because we are already fully spiritual mature. We're already fully spiritual, uh, spiritually mature." I I have to tell you, I was absolutely dumbfounded. It's the only time it's ever happened in my ministry, and I'm sure a bunch of bugs flew in my mouth because uh, I looked at her. She was a senior. She and her husband were seniors, and I just—I think I had to do that. My my mouth just went, fell open, and and I'm just looking at. I don't even know what to say, and that's probably good because if I'd have said something, it probably would—I'd have had to apologize later. But but I, I thought to myself, don't answer, don't answer. The Bible says, answer not a fool according to their folly. And and by the way, if you ever encounter somebody that's that spiritually arrogant, there's not much you can say that's going to convince them otherwise. And let me just tell you this, too. What's interesting is when a person tells you how spiritually mature they are, it means how spiritually immature they are. You know, if they have to tell you, we're already there, Pastor, you can preach these; the Other people need it, but we don't, which means you need it more than anybody else. Well, when you have, here, here's my point, to, to, when you have a, a faulty spiritual view of yourself, you know what the byproduct is? Spiritual complacency. See, they didn't think they needed to do anything because they were already mature. We don't really know. We're spectators. We watch others who need to grow spiritually. See, and that's really what had happened at Laodicea. They had a false view of themselves, and that false view will always lead you to a kind of uh, complacency. So let's look at this message to the complacent Christians and see what it can teach us. Now the first thing I want to start with, I'm going to take three points this morning, I'll give you three points next week, but the first thing that I want to start with is the faithful character of Christ. We see that, and you have to get this to understand why this is important in the whole context of, of his, his message to the church at Laodicea. Notice he said, the words of the amen, that's Christ, as I said, the faithful and true witness. And that's what I want to focus on for just a second. What is he talking about? He's talking about the character. He's talking about his character. Now, here's what this is this is a statement of authority and reliability. In other words, Jesus has the credentials to deliver the message and his counsel to the church. That's what he's doing. Uh, are, Are you with me? So, what he's starting out, he's saying, this is a pastor. Relay this message from the true and faithful witness to the people. In other words, I have the credentials. That's what Jesus was saying to address the church. Sometimes it is a message of encouragement, and sometimes it's a message of discipline, isn't it? And in this case, what he's trying to do is because they are so spiritually cocky or feeling so spiritually proud of themselves. He says, "I have what I'm about to. You need to know I have the authority." to deliver the message that I'm about to deliver that I have the credentials because he's a faithful and true then here's what it means we need to listen when God speaks by the way God's still speaking he speaks to us right here through this book he speaks through the message of the preacher if the preacher is speaking from the book he he still and he still has the credentials that, and you have, to, you have to understand why that's important because we live in a world today that oftentimes people and people in our churches will go like this. Well, <clears throat> I know the Bible says, but... You know, what? when a person says, I, I believe the Bible, and I know what the Bible says, but guess what they're saying? What, what are they doing? They're saying, I, I'm not going to submit. There's some things that I disagree with because I don't like the message, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to reject that. I know the Bible says this, and I believe the Bible, but you listen, be careful any time you see or hear a person say that. What they're saying is that Jesus doesn't have the credentials to say what Jesus has said. I mean, that's the, that's the heart of it. And so Jesus is, at the very beginning of his address to them, he's establishing his authority, and because it is his message, it is not a message to be debated, it is a message to be, to be received, and then to be acted upon. Several years ago, uh, Reader's Digest nominated Tom Hanks, the actor Tom Hanks, y'all know who Tom Hanks is, they nominated Tom Hanks as, quote, the most trusted man in the world. Tom Hanks. And that was back when David Letterman did his um, Tonight show back in, I guess it was 2013 or 14, something like that. And he had Tom Hanks on the show and to interview him, and he asked this question. Letterman asked him, he said, "What have you done to become so trustworthy?" Here's what Tom Hanks said. He said, "What did I do to earn this kind of trust?" Well, he said, "I'm honest." He said, and I'm honest because I tell people that I'm lying to them. And he said, because I'm in show business. Well, that makes more sense then. And he said, but occasionally somebody will send me a project, and there's no way uh, that I'm going to do it because it stinks and it's lousy, and I don't want to do it. But I will say to them, for example, Doug, I'm lying to you right now, but I love this thing so much that I want to do it. But I can't because I have to publicize a movie in Japan. By the way, Doug, I'm lying to you. The things I just said are lies. But don't you feel better about it? But then when I'm supposed to be in Japan, as I said, promoting my new movie, I actually turn up in America in the crowd at a hockey game, and that kind of blows it. But then I tell him, I come back and say, But hey, dude, I opened the conversation by saying I'm lying to you. Well, how trustworthy is that? I'm going to tell you something, but I'm lying to you. So you're never going to know when I'm really honest or when I'm not honest, and now I've been nominated as the most trustworthy man in the world. Well, I want to tell you something. Jesus will never do that to you. Jesus will never lie to you just to make you feel better. That's what Tom Hanks said. So what i do is I'll, I'll lie, and then I'll tell them I'm lying. So do not that make you feel better about my lie? Jesus will never do that. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. So when Jesus says something, you can trust it. You can trust everything Jesus says. Jesus is not playing some kind of semantic word game with you to try to say, uh, do you, you trust me or not? He is completely and totally trustworthy. Christ's faithfulness and Christ's character has proven itself trustworthy. Therefore, his message should be received without hesitation and without reservation that's what's going on. You didn't know there was that much in verse 14, did you? But that's what's going on there. That's what he's doing. He's establishing for them his credibility. In other words, I have the authority to address the issues that that, uh, are real in our lives. That's what he's saying to Laodicea. Now, with that said, Jesus delivers his message and he begins this message with the second thing that I want you to note this morning, and that is the shameful condition of the church. So we see the faithful character of Christ, but in verse 15 and 16, we see the shameful condition of the church. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, have y'all noticed the... The statement, I know, has been in every one of these church, church incidents. Every one of them. Where Jesus says, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know your works, he says. Jesus knew who and what they really had become. He knew all about them. He knew they were lukewarm. Now, what is lukewarm? What does that mean when we talk about lukewarmness? Well, it means useless and ineffective. That's a simple definition. I know that you are useless and ineffective. They didn't see that about themselves because they were blind, as we'll talk about. But it's a half-hearted kind of commitment. It was self-reliant and self-sufficient. Now, here's the thing. Jesus knows us, too. He could easily walk up to any one of us and say, I know you. No, I don't just know you. I know you. The heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can understand it? Only God. Jesus could walk into this room and start sitting down. Would you be nervous if he did? If he sat down and said, Hey, Ray, I know you. I know you. Chuck, I know you. Mike, I know you. And then he just started moving back. I bet this service would be over fast. Jesus is here to tell us what he knows about us. Wow. Wow. But he could, couldn't he? You know what the amazing thing is? That he does know us and he still loves us. Amen? Isn't that good? Whew. But uh, we'd get a little bit nervous, probably. if Jesus walked in and said, I'm going to tell you what I know about you. I'm going to tell you. Uh, and then we would say, well, don't tell it out loud. Right? <laughs> Now think about that. If I said, Jesus is coming today, He's going to tell us what He knows about us, and He's going to make it public for all of us. I'm telling you, this place would empty. We love Jesus. We love Jesus. See you, Jesus. Catch you next time. You going to be back next Sunday? Well, He is here. He is here, and He does know. (laughs) He knows, doesn't He? He knows if we're hot or if we're cold. He knows if we're lukewarm or not. And that's what he's telling them, I know. I know things about you that you haven't even, you've deceived yourself about. I, I know. That's what he's saying to them. And he could do that with us and say, Ray, you're hot. Ray, you're cold. Ray, you're lukewarm. Now, Jesus didn't call the church out at Laodicea to embarrass them. His goal wasn't to embarrass them. This this wasn't written, and by the way, it wasn't written to the the city of Laodicea. It was delivered to the church at Laodicea. And he's not doing it to embarrass them. He's not saying, man, I'm going to go. And and why is he doing it? He's doing it to repair them. He's doing this to to get things straightened out, to help them see what they they have deceived themselves about. So he's not trying to embarrass them. He's trying to, to discipline and correct and repair them. And the same is true for us when when the Spirit tugs at us inside and and we know that He's revealing to us our condition. and, and, And if we're lukewarm, that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, I want to clear up something for you this morning. In fact, I bet it's something you've never heard about this passage. When you hear this terminology, I wish that you were either Hot or cold. Y'all have heard that before? You've read this passage before? Now, let me tell you how that is variously translated. It is translated often, of, well, hot means spiritually dynamic, right? And cold tends to be uh, uh, taught or preached as, as, as spiritually dead. Now, think about this. Jesus said, I wish you were spiritually hot, or I just wish you were spiritually dead. You can't imagine Jesus saying, man, I'd rather you be spiritually dead than spiritually hot or lukewarm. Jesus would never say that. Now, hang on, I want to show you something. So what is Jesus really saying? Because this is, this is only, I've only heard it a few times, but I think it's right. <clears throat> Remember I said there's a city called Hierapolis that is just a few miles north. Well, Hierapolis was known for its hot springs healing that were used for healing people would go and sit in these hot springs and uh, for healing and you know we know that 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 heat is applied oftentimes for for muscle soreness and everything if you're not there yet you one day will understand the value of heat and so these spring do you know you can still go i've been in this region you can still go and you can see the ruins of the aqueduct that came from hierapolis that carried these hot spring waters that were used for healing. Okay, are you with me? Okay, now that makes sense, doesn't it? I wish you were hot and and you brought healing and health uh, to others. Okay, but the cold thing, what's that about? Spiritual death? No. South of Laodicea was another city called Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the Christians at Colossae. Do you know what Colossae had? It had these extremely cold springs and streams. And you know what they did in Laodicea? Just like they had an aqueduct bringing the hot water in for healing pools and that, they had the cold water aqueduct into Laodicea so people could be refreshed by the cold water. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss this. I wish you were hot such that you brought healing and and help to people in need or that you were cold which brought refreshment. One or the other, you could be spiritual refreshment to people or you could be a source of spiritual healing and help to people, but you can't in the middle does no good for anybody. In fact, do you know... um, uh, medically speaking, do you know sometimes what they? I guess they still do this, but they used to do this. Is if they needed you to throw up, you know what they would sometimes give you? Lukewarm water full of salt, and they get you to drink that because it just doesn't sit with the system, and it would cause. If they needed you to evacuate your stomach or something like that, they that is not. A, that's been a process that's been used. Now think about that. Does that make more sense to you now? So you see, Jesus wasn't saying, I wish you would just, just either spiritually hot or spiritually dead. He was saying, be one or the other. Be cold refreshment, spiritual refreshment, or be, be spiritual health and healing. But don't try to be uh, in between. And, and so uh, uh, Jesus is trying to communicate to them how important it is to be useful to him and not useless like lukewarm water was both hot and cold water are acceptable one to heal one to refresh both are needed and both are blessings both both do something good but don't be lukewarm because it doesn't heal and it doesn't refresh Erwin Lutzer um, tells about a friend he has in Germany who said that he attended a concert that included a piece played by a handbell choir. And he said in the middle of their rendition, have you ever been to a handbell concert? In the middle, of, we used to have a handbell thing uh, here, uh, choir. And they over here sometimes at Christmas, they'd play all the handbells. It's a pretty cool thing. And, and he says, so his friend is at this handbell concert in Germany, and they're, you know, they're, they're picking up their bells and doing all that. And there was a drunk man that walked down to the handbell table in the middle of the concert and he took the, the, the sheet that laid across the table where the handbells were sitting and he yanked it <laughs> he yanked it out and the handbells all fell over and everything here's the amazing thing the concert just continued like nothing had happened the music was being piped in through the speakers it was still ringing the bells were still ringing do you get it? They were just going through the motions. They weren't really doing the concert. You know what? There's a lot of Christians that are just going through the motions. That's what was going on at Laodicea. And that's what, that's what lukewarmness looks like. It's just going through uh, the motions. And the problem with the Christians here at Laodicea, and the problem for many of us, is that we have mastered the motions of faith. We know how to, to look like Uh, we're playing the instruments when in reality we're just going through the motions we're not living authentically the faith that we have you know the bible tells us that we are to we are to be in the world but not of the world it teaches us that that we live in the world but we're not of the world but listen here's what the Laodiceans were they were in the world and they were of the world they looked and they lived more like their culture than they did their king and his kingdom their worldview was like the world's. Do you know everybody has a worldview? That's become a popular... That's been around for years and years, but it's really become popular in the last decade. What's your worldview? Your world? Everybody has a worldview. A worldview is simply the way you see things. It's kind of the lens through which you filter everything. Everybody has a worldview. The problem is, for the Laodiceans, is their worldview was dictated by the world. There, look, years ago you essentially had two worldviews. You had what we call a secular worldview and a sacred worldview. So one was biblically based. This is God is the creator, God's laws uh, rule, God is the authority, and that was a sacred. So everything is is viewed through the lens of God's word and God the creator. But in years that followed, we've developed so many secularistic kinds of this is your view, that's your view, everybody's... Here's what happened. Their worldview looked a whole lot like the world's worldview. Instead of them, a Christian worldview shapes our behavior. But a world's worldview, the world shapes our behavior. The Christians either shaped by the Word of God or the world's view. And their worldview was just like the world's. Their values were like the world's. You know, do you know what your values do? Your values form your convictions. You know what your convictions are? They're the things that you refuse to compromise on. And if we're not careful, the world can shape our values. And if the world shapes our values, our values will form our convictions which will align mostly with the world instead of the Word of God. And then their passions were like the world's. Their pursuits were like the world. They were chasing the same things the world was. That's why, by the way um the world was fine with them there was no there was any persecution or suffering the world was fine with them because listen you couldn't really tell a whole lot of difference between their values their worldview and their pursuits than you could the world does that make sense i i thought about as i was working on the message passage uh, paul wrote to demas demas was one of uh, his assistants in the ministry and he writes to tell timothy he's lonely paul's lonely Because because his other associates had gone to different places for the purpose of the gospel and and the, the ministry, but they had left Paul alone. But there's one guy in particular that he notes, maybe you've heard of a guy named Demas. And Paul writes to Timothy, this young preacher, and he's talking about being lonely, and he wants him to send some things to him, and some people to him, and he said, because the others have gone here and here and here. And then he says, and Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. One of his colleagues, one of his friends in ministry finally said, you know what, the pull of the world is, is too much for me. I want, the, I want the, what the world offers. And Paul says that Demas, in love with his present world, deserted him. Have you noticed that, that we see this kind of worldly capitulation in, in several of the churches we've studied, this worldly capitulation that they're... they're they're challenged about we've talked about it all through this series it's because listen the pressure to conform to the image of this world rather than the image of Christ listen has existed as long as the church has existed this battle to conform to either the image of Christ or to the image of the world has been going on for over 2,000 years it's been a struggle, a battle that the church has, has battled. It's a battle that you have and that I have. And, and, uh, and, and it's this ongoing thing that we must fight because the pull of the world pulls at our flesh and our flesh is weak. Our spirit may be willing, you know, but our flesh is so weak. It's why James wrote these words. James said, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit to God, and then resist the devil. By the way, the order's important. He didn't say, resist the devil and submit to God. Submit to God. Why? So you can resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then he says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And then he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Aren't you <laughs> Isn't it interesting when you read the New Testament? If you're real honest, the writers of Scripture, they just beat around the bush about things don't they not really James says cleanse your heart you sinners you know if you say that enough times in a church you'll be looking for another job but these writers and Jesus was very direct wasn't he in uh, to the church at Laodicea saying look here's where you are you think you're okay but you're not James tells us to submit ourselves to God. And and then he did you notice the last thing he says, you double-minded. Do you know why he was telling them to submit to God? And resist, because they had become double-minded. Do you know what double-mindedness is? It means, well, I, I want God, but I, I, want, I, I want this. I, I, I want this, and, and I want God. It is, you've heard this before, uh, it's straddling the line. It's that kind of stuff. And so James says to and Jesus said it too. He said, no man can serve two masters. How true it is. And he says, so uh, you can't straddle. You've got to submit to God. At some point in time, how do we get beyond this? How do we not become? And I want to tell you something. Is I'm studying Back through these churches at Laodicea, I mean, at, in, in Revelation, I've asked myself along the way, God, don't let me be a Laodicean. Don't be, let me be an Ephesian. You know, they had lost their first love. God, don't let me. And I've asked myself, look, before I came in here to preach this, this week when I was saying, I, I pray, God, if I'm a Laodicean, let me see it. Don't let me be blind to it because they were blind. And, and, and if I'm lukewarm, Lord, let me know. I don't want to be lukewarm I want to be either hot or cold but not lukewarm but why were they so compromised why had they become so lukewarm yeah it's because they had mastered the motions but the answer is found in the last thing I want to show you number three the boastful confusion of the church the boastful confusion they were boasting about their who they really were or who they thought they really were. That's why I should say it. Verse 17, look at this. For you say, you say, this is what they said. It's not what God said. And by the way, I just remind you, it's what God actually says about you that counts, not what you say about you. And you say, notice what they had said. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. And then he adds, but you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They had a false view of themselves. And that's so dangerous that we can have that false kind of view of who we really are. There, Some of you will remember one of the greatest boxers of all time, Muhammad Ali. I mean, he is considered probably the, the champion of all time of boxers, but he was mouthy. And he was always kind of boasting of different things. One of my favorite stories is he boarded a 747 uh, to take a trip and uh, as the plane was taxiing to the runway you know the flight attend- attendants walk up and down and make sure your your seat uh, back is up and your tray table is up and that you're buckled in and and she happens to walk by Muhammad Ali and she notices that he's not buckled in and she looks him, she says Mr. Ali said I need you to buckle your seatbelt." to which Ali turned and looked at her and said Superman don't need no seatbelt. She didn't miss a beat. She turned back and looked at him and said, Yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) He had a false view of himself, didn't he? And and he was a bit confused. But but so were the layout of sins. And so are many of the people who follow Christ. they become confused about who they really are. Now, we said Laodicea's condition was that they were lukewarm. But listen, it expressed itself through their boasting. We don't need anything. We've prospered. And that actually reveals how confused and dysfunctional that they really were. Because they were confused by their prosperity into believing something about themselves spiritually that wasn't true and what Jesus knew about them. And there were two things that characterized Number one, they were arrogant. And they thought they had it all together. Why? They, listen, they measured their spiritual life by their physical life, by their material life. And so they said, look what we got. We, we got it all. Therefore, we got it all together. And we are spiritually all together because we, ha- we have it all together materially. They assumed, you see, that their prosperity meant that they were favored by God. Now, God sometimes does favor us materially. And there are a couple of reasons that he does that. I'll tell you about one in particular. But they were confused. They had confused material things with spiritual things. Y'all, y'all, I know you remember all of my sermons. And a few weeks ago, I preached on the church at Smyrna. And you may recall that one of the things I said about the church at Smyrna is that it was a very poverty-stricken church. Now, it was one of the two good churches that Jesus addressed. Philadelphia was the one we talked about last week. But Smyrna was a poverty-stricken. They were struggling, and the culture had been mean and unkind and persecuted them financially as well as uh, 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 in terms of their religion. But Jesus said something to Smyrna. He said, I know your poverty, but you are rich they were okay so watch this they were they were physically impoverished but they were spiritually wealthy it's just the opposite with Laodicea Jesus says to them you're spirit uh, you're physically wealthy but you're spiritually poor they're just the opposite from the church at Smyrna, but they had confused material things with spiritual things, and they assumed that because they were well-off materially, that they must be well-off spiritually. Vance Havner said it this way, Smyrna was the rich, poor church, and Laodicea was the poor, rich church. So they were arrogant. They thought they were just superior because they had all that they needed around them. But they're not only arrogant, they were also ignorant. They were ignorant because they trusted in themselves rather than God. You know, so what do we need? Look who we are. Look what we have. They said they had no needs, and they boasted about it. But they were ignorant to the facts, and so Jesus sets the record straight. This is what Jesus says. He says, you're really wretched. What does that mean? Well, it means that they were spiritually miserable people. He says to them that they were miserable. You know, <clears throat> there are a lot of folks that are trying to convince themselves inwardly that they're okay with God because everything around them is okay. So they thought, well, it, it all everything around us is good. It must be good in here. And yet, they have this unease inside. They're miserable. Why? Because... They're confused about the truth, about who they are. They were pitiable. The word pitiable is used there. It just means they deserve pity. Have you ever seen somebody and you thought, they just don't get it? And then instead of being angry at them, you, you feel sorry for them. Have you ever had that experience? You know, they, they don't get it and, and they, they just, they're, you can't convince them. And then you find yourself not saying, uh, those folks are dumb. You, you, instead you say, I, I feel sorry for them. I really pity them. Well, that's what is going on here. They they were full of pride and full of themselves. But Jesus was saying, what you don't understand is you're pitiful people. And then he says, here's uh, here's another fact, that they were poor. They were spiritually bankrupt. They didn't get that because you know what? They lived by their physical eyes. That's why the Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. Your sight will will confuse you if that's all you have to build your life on, the things you see, because you won't see the things that count forever. And so they didn't walk by faith. They walked by their sight. And Jesus says, you're blind. You think you see everything right, but you don't. There is a kind of spiritual vision that all of us need. It's the ability to see through the eyes of Christ, to understand what's going on. Listen, as you sit in here uh, this morning, there are things happening that you don't even know about and you can't see them but you can believe it by faith because there's a spiritual war going on and that war listen involves you because the enemy wants to take you down he wants to ruin you if you're not saved and you're watching uh, live or in this live audience listen the enemy is fighting there's a war going on and it's about you and your soul is involved in this whole thing That's why Jesus said, fear him that can destroy the soul and cast it into hell forever. There's a battle going on. And if you don't learn to see by faith and understand, and uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if I hear by faith what the word of God is, then I can see spiritually that there's so much more going on than what my physical eyes see. But if you don't get that, you'll live a life and all of your your religion will be by sight. And notice I use the word religion. It'll be by sight. That's what they were. Oh, it looks good. Look, everything around us is good. But Jesus says, you're blind. You don't know what's really going on. And then he says that they were naked, meaning that they weren't cloaked in righteousness. They had the finest of clothes. Remember, the clothing industry was big time in Laodicea. And isn't it interesting that Jesus pulls this out? Now, it... Look, let me just show you. Jesus used their own geographic area and their own industries to make his points. You're hot or cold. You're not hot or cold. You're lukewarm. You're not for the hot streams of the cold. That's what was happening. They could relate to that. And then he says, "You're naked." And they're going, "Naked? I got the finest clothes. I got the designer clothes. We make designer clothes here in Laodicea. I've got the finest wardrobe. How can Jesus? Again, it goes back to the fact that they don't see correctly." And they had believed their own press clippings. That they were, they had it all together. But Jesus says, he uses something that they can relate to, clothing. You think you're clothed um, to the hilt, but you're really naked. Because you're not clothed in righteousness. You're not clothed in that that garment of Christ which makes all the difference. One of the worst things that we can do is to convince ourselves that if everything is well physically and circumstantially, then everything is well spiritually. It may be the case sometimes, but not always. And Jesus wants you to know when it's real when it's not, but you've got to learn to keep your eyes on Him so you'll be able to understand, God, am I a lay out of sin? Have I become a lay out of seeing? Did you know that sometimes God is good to you because he's, he loves you and he's trying to get your attention and turn your heart and break your heart. Did you know that? Let me say that again. Sometimes the good stuff in your life may be God trying to break your heart with his kindness and his love and goodness and turn you to repentance. You say, really, where'd you come to get that from? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about the Roman Christians. The Roman Christians were kind of like the sins. There was an element of them that thought they had it all together. And uh, there are two things in Romans that, uh, that reveal that. One is that um, they, they put together this argument that went like this. God loves to give grace to his people, right? And is, would you agree with that? I, th- that's true. God loves to give grace to his people. Thank God for grace, Amen. And so, here's what the Romans says God loves to give grace. And when does God give grace? God expresses grace to sinners. Right? Thank goodness for that. We are sinners saved by grace. Thank goodness. So, their rationale went like this. So, God loves to give grace to sinners. Therefore, if we sin more, God can give more grace. And so, that's what they were doing. They're saying, well, God loves to give grace, so we'll just sin more. Oh, God, we need more grace. Okay, I can sin some more. God, I need more grace. It was a cop-out, you understand. And so, Paul answers them and says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue sinning so that more grace can keep abound? God loves to give grace, and so I love to sin. So, this is a wonderful formula. And you know what Paul's answer is? Shall grace, uh, shall sin uh, continue that grace may abound? He says, uses the strongest language in the Greek, meganoato in the Greek, and it means this, no, 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 never! That's how he would say it. In other words, they were abusing the grace of God. They weren't taking advantage of the grace. They were abusing it. And he said, they were saying, well, we'll just continue sinning, Okay. That's number one. It reveals who, where they really were. Number two is, in, in chapter 2 of Romans, there were these Romans, so, so they were going, well, look around us. Look at what we have. Many of them had prospered, and they had believed an old argument that was not unusual uh, for, uh, in Judaism. In fact, if everything is well around you, it means God is blessing you, and therefore you're doing it right. And so these Roman Christians had said, we must be doing it right. Look, look, look how good it is. You know what Paul said? Now, are you with me? This is who they are. This is what Paul says. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you get that? Just like they were abusing the grace thing, they didn't understand that God had been good to them. And Paul says, you are despising the goodness of God. The reason God has been good to you, he said, is because He's trying to break your heart by showing you how much He loves you. He's trying to break your heart and cause you to repent and turn back to Him. Wow. Now listen, If you've got to be disciplined, I guess that's the best way, right? But the point was, sometimes God uses goodness to try to get our attention, to get us through all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. Sometimes God, what you think on the outside is God's blessing is really God trying to get your attention. Not every time, but sometimes. Listen, and if you'll ask Him, He will let you know. Now listen, class i'm just about done here if your life though is physically good but spiritually bankrupt god is trying to tell you something if your life everything's together except you spiritually god's trying to save you he's trying to get your attention when i was in atlanta a friend a colleague and i went to visit a man extreme of extreme wealth a corporate mogul had made more money than he could ever possibly spend, lived in this palatial mansion. And we went, I forget the reason that took us there. I think he had been to church and we went to see him, to visit with him, talk to him about Christ to see if he knew Christ. We went into this palatial, I mean, this estate thing, a gated thing that had to get in and it's a compound almost kind of thing. And we went in and we went into his house And I don't remember what he did, but he was very kind and welcoming. And we sat down to talk to him. We began to talk to him about uh, spiritual need and how we all need Christ as our Savior and, and how we're all spiritually bankrupt and all this kind of stuff and that we're all sinners and everything. And after a few minutes, he paused us and kindly said, he said, look around here. He said, look around here. He said, I don't need anything. And he said, I'm sorry, but I don't understand when you say that I need Christ. Look, he said, and I did this. This is is all the result of my business success. He, He said, I'm not trying to be, but why do I need Jesus? I don't need anything. And he said, I can have anything I want. And he, he, he didn't get the message that he was spiritually bankrupt because like the layout of sins, he just looked around and he said, look, look, I don't need anything. Now, you may not be on that level economically or, or, or with wealth, but what he was doing is he was despising the goodness of God. He was despising the goodness. Of, he was presuming upon the patience and the goodness of God. Friend, you may sometimes feel that way. At least you're operating that way. I, what do I need? I need Christ for. I, everything's pretty good in my life. Everything is working out okay. I have what I need. I, I, I feel pretty good. You may be operating that way, but listen to me. It won't last forever. It won't last forever. And that is why you need God because no matter how successful you are in this world, Laodiceans, you need God. Don't presume upon His goodness. And by the way, you know, all of us are one stroke or one heart attack, one car accident, one whatever, fill in the blank, away from suddenly needing God desperately. Don't presume upon His goodness. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we're, we can be just like the Laodiceans, and i pray god that I, I i never lose perspective like they had lost and become complacent god in my pursuit of you and just uh, presume that your goodness in so many ways for which we all praise you for your goodness and your grace but lord let us not take it for granted and there are some who are listening by radio or watching by live stream and and father i pray for them as well that That if they've never trusted you, that they'll call on you, just as you've said. And in this live audience, call on him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're not certain you've ever trusted him, you've just presumed because you've got some pretty good religious motions that you're okay, then I urge you to call out to him this morning. Say something like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me in spite of me. Thank you for dying on a cross for my sins, because I know I'm a sinner. And I pray, Jesus, that you will now come into my life, just like you've told me you would if I called. So I call on you today to become my Savior, my Lord and Master. Then some may be here and say, you know what, I'm kind of where the Laodiceans were. I have been, I have trusted Christ my Savior, but I have, I have forgotten the pursuit of God. And I've just assumed, but I know inside my heart, I'm kind of miserable, wretched feeling. I, I, I've lost my spiritual vision and sight and And so, Lord, I just want to tell you today, restore to me my spiritual sight. Lord, I want to tell you um, that I want to be hot or cold, but I don't want to be lukewarm. No more lukewarmness. Lord, would you hear these prayers being offered? I know you do. We offer them in Jesus' name.